Hi, welcome to the Penis Project podcast. This is the place to come to find out everything you've always wanted to know about men's health but were too embarrassed to ask. Join physiotherapist Dr. Joe Milios and sexologist nurse practitioner Melissa Hadley-Barrett as they talk to real men and the experts about men's private parts. Have a burning question you really want to know the answer to? Please subscribe to our website at thepenisproject.org and just ask us. The greater the length while the greater the strength, the more time I've got for you. There's too much talking, texting, tweeting, posting. Too much noise altogether. In silence is strength and peace and space. Imagine silence forever. The Penis Project podcast is proudly supported and sponsored by PROST, Exercise for Prostate Cancer, and the RS Health Penile Rehabilitation Program. PROST is a not-for-profit charity set up by myself in 2012 that aims to help men exercise during their experience with prostate cancer. If you want to know anything more about PROST, including our online service and USB product now available, please just go to prost.com.au. Hi, I'm Melissa Hadley-Barrett and I designed the Penile Rehabilitation Program to help men recover from prostate cancer. It's an online program built on decades worth of knowledge and experience and practice. It's the only one of its kind in the world and it actually works. So if you've been diagnosed with prostate cancer and want to get your penis working again as quickly as possible, and why wouldn't you, then visit penilerehabilitationprogram.com and you'll be off and running. And it only takes about 15 minutes a day. All the best with your recovery, which I promise will never be as bad as you think. November 11, 11am, 60 seconds, kids watch on the wall. In the pub, in the tab, in the cars, we remember... So welcome to the Penis Project podcast. Today, we're speaking to Professor Robert Newton, who is a Professor of Exercise and Medicine at the... Exercise Medicine Research Institute at Edith Cowan University in Perth, Western Australia. He actually established this in 2004. Um, so today we're just going to talk about the fact that exercise is medicine and how that works and how that can help you people who are listening to us today. So, and we've also got Kendall, who is a nurse practitioner and a urology nurse practitioner, and she is also does um, has a nutrition degree and lots of experience in men's health so she's going to be a co-presenter today and so welcome Rob and Kendall I'll let you start off. Great thank you. Um, so Rob there's just no way around this topic because the human body is built to move and unfortunately due to modern technology and working from home now thanks to COVID we mostly have caved into sedentary lifestyles. Although we're using a lot of technology to speed things up and make things better, I still feel like I'm quite time poor and a lot of my patients are a lot more time poor. And cardiovascular disease is attributable to excess weight and the obesity epidemic has increased rapidly over the decades. So men who diagnose, uh, men who exercise after diagnosis of prostate cancer are said to reduce the risk of prostate cancer. And this is why we wanted to talk to you today. So where is the best place to start in terms of exercise? Well, thanks, Kendall and Melissa, for having a chat with me today. Um, I think probably the most important thing is not to be entirely sedentary. There's a very large difference between not doing any physical activity or movement at all and doing a little bit. 
So a little bit is better than none. Uh, a little bit more is better than a little bit. Uh, but I think that probably the key message, I think, is that you need to avoid being totally sedentary because that will really put your body in a spin and create a whole series of problems, which you, which you did allude to. And certainly for a person going through a cancer experience, then this is greatly exacerbated if they're sedentary. Uh, it just doesn't provide the environment for the body to actually fight the disease. It doesn't provide the environment for the body to tolerate the treatments, chemotherapy or hormone therapy, and then the side effects will be much, much worse. So I think it is just a matter of, uh, I realise that, you know, everyone is time poor these days, which is unfortunate. Uh, technology and computers were supposed to give us more time. They've actually stolen time away from us. Uh, I think, though, we need also have a different approach when we're talking about a, a, a potentially terminal uh, disease. And uh, I think when you have a cancer diagnosis, we need to start separating out physical activity and exercise as a medicine. Um, you know, you, you'd never say to your oncologist, oh, look, you know, I'm really busy today. I'm not going to come and get my chemo. Um, you know, I'll just give it a miss. Um, you just wouldn't do that. And I think that same with the exercise medicine, we need to say, no, this is part of my treatment. It's a critical part of my management of my disease. Um, all the evidence is that it will increase the chances of survival by between 50 and 60%. Uh, so, you know, this, this is not a nice to have. Uh, this is a must-have, I think. And, you know, it may not be pleasant. I think that we've, we've got a, a misconception, I think, that, um, you know, exercise needs to be fun and needs to be enjoyable. It can in many cases be so, but when it's as a, as a, as a targeted approach to try and, you know, survive this, this uh, the disease of prostate cancer, then uh, it may not necessarily be pleasant. And it could be quite um, intense uh, because we know that the intensity of the exercise has a huge effect on the outcomes and you're going to sweat and it's going to hurt and your muscles are going to be sore a couple of days later. But that's necessary to produce the hormonal changes and the cytokine changes, the chemical changes and the structural changes within our body to try and beat this disease. So what does, you know, what, what Rob, are the, like in layman's terms for people listening, what is it that, that their body is doing that is causing it to fight the cancer or assist in the cancer fight? Sure, that's a good question, Melissa. And, I think first off, let's just go back again to the sedentary lifestyle. Um, when we're sedentary, um, as Kendall well pointed out, we're made to move. Um, you know, we're, we're an animal that's meant to move uh, pretty much all day or every waking hour. We're meant to be keep, keep moving because that's how we've evolved uh, to survive. We had to constantly walk every day, um, tens you know, of kilometres every single day to find food. And we had to lift heavy things. We had to chase after things that we wanted to eat and run away from things that wanted to eat us. And that's how we've evolved. And our, our, our biology and our genes and, and expression of those genes hasn't changed at all uh, from 45,000 years ago. It hasn't changed appreciably. So that's what our body expects. And when we're sedentary, the, the, the system goes into um, chaos and uh, the hormonal system's totally out of whack. Our metabolism, our immune system is compromised. Uh, and... So many of us will have a high state of inflation, uh, inflation, sorry, inflation's on everyone's mind at the moment. It is, yeah. <laughs> um, I was meant to say inflammation. And uh, that, that's, that is driven by being um, 
overweight, but even people who are not overweight who are sedentary still can have a chronic state of inflammation. And that's the body's natural response uh, to you know, the environment. But uh, what it does is it actually creates a pro-cancer environment. So the hormones and the other, other uh, chemicals which are circulating in your system uh, are actually helping to drive the cancer. So the first thing is don't be sedentary, move, uh, get moving. From there though, we can be a lot more sophisticated. And what um, in 2019, we published the exercise medicine uh, guidelines for Australia. And in that we really, um, based on the evidence, suggested that exercise should target the issue which is most impacting the patient. So if we look at men with prostate cancer, if they're on androgen deprivation therapy, then we have considerable issues around increasing risk of cardiovascular disease. And in many cases, the heart attack or stroke uh, will cause morbidity or even mortality long before the, the prostate cancer uh, would have killed the patient. It's just that they're under testosterone suppression. Um, testosterone is absolutely critical for normal, normal function of both men and women. Mm -hmm. And uh, when we take that away, we have catastrophic changes in body composition in particular. And muscle mass decreases and, and fat mass increases. And this uh, causes an imbalance. Um, because both of these, these systems are uh, endocrine organs. So both fat tissue and muscle tissue is constantly pouring out hormones and, and cytokines. And uh, these are molecules that signal to all the other tissues in the body. So we then need to target, well, what's causing the greatest risk of death, if you like? And, um, you know, for example, men on androgen deprivation therapy, uh, they have a catastrophic loss of bone. They become osteopenic and then osteoporotic. And, you know, uh, most of the men will be older. Uh, if they fall and, and fracture a hip uh, because they have weak bones and low muscle strength, then, you know, the prognosis is not good. They, they will really struggle. And the, the data is that many won't survive the next six months. Mm -hmm. So the exercise medicine has to be very tailored in that case. Uh, to overcome the testosterone uh, suppression. And, and a paper we published in 2016, I think. Um, don't quote me on that. Um, we showed that a very targeted exercise, we were actually doing impact loading. So we had the patients um, uh, skipping and hopping and jumping uh, to try and increase the loading through the skeleton. And we, we showed for the first time anywhere in the world that we could actually stop the bone loss. So I think it's a good case in point of where we're moving to precision medicine, if you like, determining what is putting the patient at the greatest risk and then designing an exercise prescription, really targeting that. And it comes back to your original point, Kendall, that we are time poor. Uh, the, the current recommendation from the American College of Sports Medicine and the American Cancer Society is that people with cancer should do 75 to 150 minutes of aerobic exercise each week and two or more resistance training sessions. And that's a great generic starting point, but that's a lot of time um, mm. as well. You know, when you have a look at that, that's like 30 minutes, five days a week, plus your resistance training as well. And that's difficult for someone, particularly if they're unwell. Uh, they're, they're, they're having a lot of uh, toxicities from treatment, whether it be from androgen deprivation therapy or from chemotherapy, radiation therapy. Mm. And they've got everything else going on in their life. They're trying to work, they're trying to look after a family, they're dealing with cancer, uh, you know, everything else is going on. So, you know, we're advocating that let's assess the patient and then really um, the, the, the time that they've got to devote to their exercise medicine to make it highly targeted uh, to address those issues which are causing the greatest difficulty. 
Yeah. So what is the best sort of activity in terms of, I know you were talking about aerobic activity. Is that the best place to start? And what is aerobic activity? Is it someone running on the spot and jumping? And what does that mean um, in terms of that sort of exercise? Sure. So there's two broad um, modes or types uh, of exercise. Uh, aerobic or cardiorespiratory exercise because it stresses the cardiorespiratory system. And that's your more longer-term exercise, large muscle groups. So you're jogging, rowing, swimming, um, you know, cycling, those sort of activities. Uh, the other major type is resistance training, and that's lifting weights or working against a resistance. But it has to be a resistance that you can only, only uh, perform maybe 6 to 12 or 15 repetitions. Um, if it's more than that, it doesn't create the stimulus to the muscles uh, and the bones in the same way. So in general, that's why the, the, you know, the American um, College of Sports Medicine, American Cancer Society have that recommendation that, you know, most if not all patients should do a combination of aerobic exercise as well as resistance training exercise. They're both, they're both equally as important. But for patients which are having you know, difficulties and specific issues which they're facing, then that balance may have to change. So if you have a patient, for example, who has very low muscle mass, um, they first of all find aerobic exercise difficult, but also uh, doing more aerobic exercise may, may exacerbate the problem. They may actually lose more muscle. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, the emphasis has to be on strength training. A large volume of resistance training to try and produce muscle growth is very important. Um, the same thing with um, if you're looking at someone who is overweight, who has high fat mass, then they need a large volume of aerobic exercise. And the current recommendation is 300 minutes per week wow. uh, or more, which is a lot. Yeah. Um, and not achievable for many. And so in this case, really in terms of fat loss for these men, particularly men on ADT, because it really drives fat gain, uh, then it's absolutely necessary that they also have dietary restriction. So you have to bring their caloric intake down. We've published several studies recently on that. Of course, the problem with a, a fat loss program through diet or through bariatric surgery or through some of the drugs um, which are, are now available, the problem is that they're a fat loss therapy, but they're also a muscle and bone loss therapy. Mm -hmm. And um, muscle is extremely important um, for, well, for everyone, um, but it's particularly important for uh, people who are going through cancer experience because we know that the, uh, you've got all the, the aspects of losing muscle mass or declining physical function, and then that's a downward spiral. It makes exercise more difficult and quality of life declines, et cetera. But it's also that we now know that uh, muscle is critical in terms of management of side effects. So, uh, for example, many studies have shown a strong relationship between overall survival and how much muscle mass the patient has. And there's a, a very strong relationship. In fact, the relationship between survival and muscle mass is stronger than the relationship between survival and fat mass. So there's something about mass muscle mm -hmm. that is signaling to try and uh, suppress uh, the cancer cells. But no. also uh, we know that treatment toxicities, particularly from chemotherapy, are much greater uh, in patients that have low muscle mass. And that's because the, um, the muscle helps to distribute the chemotherapy agent um, through more tissue. And so you have less um, uh, chemotherapy agent targeting the heart, the liver, the kidneys, and that's where you get your, and the brain, and that's where you get these you know, bad 
um, chemotherapy uh, toxicities and illness. And quite often then, of course, the oncologist will have to back the dose off because the patient's not coping with it. And uh, that just means that they're, they're less likely to beat the cancer, they're less likely to kill it because we just can't get as much chemotherapy aging uh, into the patient. So muscle mass for learning is extremely important uh, if you've got cancer. And two recent papers we published this year uh, where we showed that uh, when we exercise, our muscle pours out uh, molecules, smaller molecules and hormones. They're uh, called cytokines. And when they're produced from muscle, they're called myokines because myo for muscle. And um, uh, what we showed was when we took prostate cancer cells in, a, uh, in vitro, so in other words, out, outside the body in a, a dish, if you like, um, and when we poured the plasma, so we, we extracted blood from these, these men. These were men with advanced prostate cancer. So they had stage four prostate cancer, they're palliative. And we extracted their blood before and after six months of, uh, of a targeted exercise program. And when we extracted the serum, so the serum portion of the blood, and we poured it over these cell lines, um, it actually suppressed the rate of growth by over 20%. And... This is probably coming back to the why um, having low muscle mass compromises your uh, survival of a cancer. Yeah. And what we also showed a relationship between uh, the change in muscle mass over that six-month period and the amount of these cytokines that the patients can produce. Um, so that's, you know, again, it harks back to the importance of muscle as, a, um, as an important endocrine organ and a signaling um, system for the rest of the body. So can I just ask a question? If, so if you go in, say if you get you're diagnosed with prostate cancer or any cancer for that matter, and you're a fit person who has good muscle mass, does that mean that you're likely to respond to the treatments better and not have as bad a journey through the treatment process as you are if you're someone who has not done a lot of exercise and not has much muscle tone? Is that right? Uh, the, that relationship between muscle mass and uh, toxicities or the treatment um, side effects has only been established for chemotherapy. Right. It hasn't been established for radiation therapy. And it's, it's because they're entirely different um, yeah. mechanisms. Yeah. Um, so it is more for chemotherapy. So for patients that advance to chemotherapy, then absolutely um, having low muscle mass, you're going to have a tough time of it. Um, it for, but for any disease, it doesn't matter. You... The fitter you are when you go into it, when you come, you know, when you get that, that diagnosis, then the, the, the better the outcome will be. It doesn't matter whether it's cardiovascular disease or, or cancer, simply because you've got a, uh, a greater resiliency. You have more of a, a physical reserve because all of the treatments are going to beat the body down. They're, they're going to reduce the, the physical fitness of the person. They're going to reduce the physical structure of the person as well. So the, the bigger your bank to start with, and you start, you know, making um, withdrawals out of it through, you know, hormone therapy or chemotherapy or surgery, then uh, you're going to get to a point when you put your bank balance is, is too low um, yeah. for you to be able to do anything. So uh, it's the same with bone um, as well. Uh, you know, the, if you're physically active throughout life and you have a good bone bank, then when these drugs start to kick in and, and start to resorb bone away, the bigger the bank you've got, the longer it's going to take until you get to an osteoporotic state. Can I just ask, for people who don't know what that is, osteoporotic state is when you've got weak, brittle bones. But can I also ask, you know, you were talking earlier about aerobic activity is important, but obviously someone who's been going through a lot of treatments, 
and is feeling, you know, not very fit at the moment, is there like what is considered aerobic? Because for someone who's really fit, they might need to run 10Ks to have achieved the same amount that someone who's not as well might have worked you know, gone for a walk for 10, for five minutes or something. So is it about that you know that you've hit the right amount of aerobic activity when your um, pulse rate's up or you're puffing or is there some way that a lay person can go, oh, yeah, I'm at the right bit? Sure. So it's all relative to the person's capability. I mean, we have you know, patients who with advanced disease are so unwell and all we try and do is say, look, can you, you know, once or twice a day, can you walk out to the front mailbox and, you know, and back, uh, and that will be sufficient to you know, start them on the journey to increase their fitness or at least, you know, prevent the decline. Uh, so it is all relative, and I think, you know, make good points there that um, heart rate is a, is a good example. We use, we use heart rate monitors extensively, and they're, you know, they're very easily available now, you know, particularly with the smart watches and, um, you know, they're, you know, easily accessible. Um, you know, or you can just take your pulse rate. But, you know, we tend to use rating of perceived exertion because because uh, of fatigue impacts on the, on the person. Um, their heart rate might not be that high, but they are struggling and they're finding that the work, work rate is, is difficult. And so we use a, a zero to 10 point scale and we just say, we want you to work in about that six to eight, which okay. is hard to quite hard. Um, the, it was back um, not so long ago, um, that people thought, oh, because you've got cancer, you should do gentle exercise. Yeah. Um, so let's, you know, bounce some balloons around or get some really light weights and you know, <laughs> wander around. Um, whilst any activity is better than none, um, you know, when, when you're fighting a disease to survive, to live, then the activity needs to be at an intensity that causes the disruptions we need. We need hormonal responses. We need inflammatory responses and immune responses. And um, gentle exercise doesn't drive that. We now know that one of the key mechanisms by which um, people who are physically active survive longer uh, with cancer is that exercise supercharges your immune system. So whenever you do exercise, particularly things like weight training, um, your body pours out um, T cells, um, immune cells, and in particular natural killer cells. Uh, and they're produced and they, and they get forced into the tumour because also when we exercise, you have, if you work at a certain level, your blood pressure goes up, your cardiac output goes out, so the, the blood flowing from your heart. And this actually forces more blood through the tumour. And this is important because it helps deliver these um, signals, these hormones and these cytokines, but it also delivers the natural killer cells into the tissue and then they, uh, they are able to locate, identify cancer cells, and they're very, very effective at destroying them if they can find them. Um, and we also know that exercise actually um, increases the surveillance of, of these T cells, these immune cells within the body, uh, and it helps them to not be fooled. Um, so what happens with cancer cells, they start out and your body's just destroying them and it's all going well, but then you get to a point where the cancer cells evolve um, and change their expression so that they can hide, so they can cloak themselves. Mm -hmm. And so uh, when their body's natural uh, immune cells come along, they can't recognise it as a problem, a cell. Uh, exercise actually, actually helps to pull that cloak away, if you like, as a, you know, as a lay explanation of how, how it works. That's great. It helps to actually take their disguise away and then the natural killer cells and other T cells destroy the cancer. Hmm. 
So um, talking about exercise, you know, I go to the gym and I have a personal trainer and sometimes when I walk away and I'm not sore, I think, oh, well, maybe that wasn't as good as an exercise. (laughs) Is there such a belief or is it really true that you have to feel pain in exercise to know that you're growing muscle? No, that's not true. No. Mm. No, the... um, Um, look, if you, you will get some pain, you know, if you haven't done something for a while, or you do an exercise which is slightly different, um, the, the body will, will produce a response, an, um, uh, an inflammatory response, which does cause pain. It's only temporary. It usually only lasts 24 to 48 hours. Um, but no, there's no, there's no relationship between the drive of um, hypertrophy or muscle growth and how much pain you have. You should avoid pain. The most important thing um, in terms of uh, muscle growth is what's called the volume load. So that is the uh, the number of exercises multiplied by the number of sets by the number of repetitions um, by the load. Um, and so that gives you, you think of it as, you know, I go to the gym and today I lifted, um, you know, two, 2.5 ton or 2,500 kilograms. Um, so that, that's, the, that's the relationship of, in terms of drive for muscle growth. And so it doesn't have to produce pain. Yeah, and does that have to be, so are you better off lifting smaller weights in quick repetitions, you know, more repetitions rather than, sorry, not quick, but more repetitions rather than lifting a heavy weight once or twice? Yeah. Yeah, look, it's um, it's an area of huge controversy. Um, There's many, many studies that show that whether you do, for example, um, sets of 10 or you do sets of 30, if the volume load is the same or similar, you get the same muscle growth stimulus. Right. Um, the problem is, I don't know if you've ever done a set of 30 um, arm curls or 30 leg press. It's really unpleasant. Yeah. Um, I'd much rather do just 10. Yeah. <laughs> and do, you, do you have to go um, to... It's a lot more time efficient as well. Um, yeah. But, you know, yeah, yeah, I mean, there is... There is um, a lot of people out there that are pushing these, you know, very high numbers of sets with light weights. Um, yeah so probably, you, I think if you work the general recommendation is to work somewhere between six and 12 repetition yeah. maximum so a weight you can lift say 10 times but it doesn't have to be the last one your absolute your eyeballs are popping out you can stop one or two repetitions before that point and you get the same or very similar effect it's yeah. more consistency you're better off to be going you know uh, every second day um, and uh, doing your resistance training and do that consistently for say 30 minutes uh, you know, week in, week out, lots of change, variety is very, very important as well. You better have to do something you can stick at uh, rather than make yourself really, really sore and not go back for a month. That's what we tell people about penis pumps, yeah. isn't it, Kendall? We say just do it only. It doesn't, bigger isn't better. We just want you to do it more frequently. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and when I do weight loss with people, um, you know, usually they don't have a gym membership or anything like that and they always feel pressure to do the actual exercise and I always try and think of pick something that you really enjoy that you're going to be consistent with um, and start off slow and work your way up because any extra exercise that you're going to put in with your day or your you know your week um, is better than what you had the previous day so um, yeah I'm still a strong believer in a good walk but you know, obviously we want to be doing a lot more than that, but most of these people don't really want to do more than that. So you've got to take what you can get. Sure. And it depends on, you know, for weight loss, it's different. Um, yeah. 
it's just a matter, a matter of well, accumulating as much as you know, uh, a bigger um, caloric deficit um, yeah. as you possibly can by increasing your output and decreasing your input. So I think that works fine. Mm. Um, but when, when addressing uh, particularly cancer-specific issues such as yeah. um, uh, Kakechia, for example, and unfortunately Kakechia is an uncontrolled loss of body weight, uh, the body's extremely inflamed and um, they just, uh, no matter what they eat or what they do, they just can't keep weight on. And uh, more, more in advanced um, cancers, but also some really nasty cancers like cancer of the pancreas or um, mesothelioma, which unfortunately is very common. Well, not common, but we have the highest rate of mesothelioma anywhere in the world in Western Australia. Um, and these, you know, these patients, they don't, they don't necessarily die of cancer, they die of cachexia. And the, the clinicians we work with say, well, the patient just disappeared. Um, the patient just, you know, wasted away. In that case, you know, a, a, a walking, for example, would be contraindicated because it will only make them lose weight faster. Yeah. Um, and so we look at, you know, very high quality uh, resistance training, a lot of anabolics as well. Um, it may involve pharmaceutical anabolics um, uh, or just, you know, protein supplementation. So when you say anabolics, can you explain that to the people listening, what, what that is? Um, well, quite often these patients, they'll be given different steroids, anabolic steroids or growth hormones, et cetera, to try and hold weight on them. Um, so they can only be prescribed. I wouldn't recommend going to get them off the no. black market. No. Um, but, um, you know, and there's also, we, we do a lot around nutritional supplementation as well. The, the, the um, you know, the, the importance of nutritional support around these patients is extremely uh, important, extremely high. Um, we, we're doing a lot of work now with, with protein supplementation, use of creatine monohydrate, for example, which is a does help you to just get a little bit more work done in, a, in an exercise session. So that's been effective mm -hmm. uh, as well. Um, some other supplementation that we've used around, uh, particularly in our bone studies, they're, they're all supplemented with vitamin D and calcium. Just to ensure that you don't have anyone that's a deficit in your study. Yeah. So listening to you say all this, it sounds to me like, you know, it's not as simple if you've got a cancer diagnosis just to rock up to your local gym and employ your personal trainer. It really is a prescribed, you know, it's a it's a prescription, but for exercise rather than a medicine. So patients you know, re who really want to achieve the best outcome really do need to come along and see an exercise physiologist like yourself so that they can go, that's experienced in cancer care, so they can weigh up all of these things and work out the best therapy. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, accredited exercise physiologists are, a, you know, a allied health profession, uh, which are recognised by the Royal College of General Practice and a number of other national medical boards has been the most appropriate allied health professional for the assessment and prescription of exercise, in particular for management of chronic disease like um, cancer. Um, and, you know, there's, there's, uh, it's very easy to find a credit exercise physiologist. You just go find an AEP uh, into your Google or wherever, uh, and you'll pop up in a website uh, for our professional body that you can find one. But, yeah, I do really recommend that because, um, uh, you, you know, you, it's, it is complex and it needs to be managed by an experienced professional. Uh, we often, though, uh, will then uh, work with a, a personal trainer or a fitness instructor. Uh, the person, the patient may want to go back to, um, you know, exercise near their home. And so we'll work with, uh, you know, the local fitness centre, for example, and the staff there and uh, to help them to get the program. But I think getting it initially assessed and finding what the issues are 
and then prescribing the program uh, by an ex accredited exercise physiologist is really important. So that um, is, now what, what we do extensively in... is use the chronic disease management plans yeah. and that's that's um, through your general practitioner. So we, we work with the patient. So to go back to your GP, here's, here's the information, um, get that chronic disease management plan and it might be a combination of AEPs and um, um, dietetics. And um, then we can assess them, prescribe. Uh, we do also a lot where we actually, they, they say, look, I just want to exercise at home. And with telehealth and uh, all the advances there, we, we're seeing some really good results in people exercising at home and we're monitoring them uh, remotely through things like Teams and Zoom and that technology. Yeah, sorry. So if someone wants to find an accredited exercise physiologist, they just Google find an AEP, is that right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And they'll, they'll take them to the website Exercise and Sports Science Australia, ESSA, E -S -S -A um, and then that, they can find that. And, and you can put in your postcode, and you can put in a distance, you might say 20 kilometres, uh, and you can even, even select cancer as a uh, specialty. Yeah. Okay, great. So I have a very important question um, because we talk about sexual health on the podcast. Is exercise um, good and enhanced sexual performance? Um, look, that is an excellent question. Our, our team has done several research projects and publications in this on this particular topic, and we have seen in men um, with with prostate cancer because obviously going through androgen deprivation therapy, and in particular if they've had prostatectomy, there may be actual um, functional issues as well as um, psychological issues affecting sexual performance. And um, yeah, we have found quite a, quite a good benefit of, of, of exercise, mainly increasing feelings of masculinity. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm not convinced that it helps too much about around the actual structural side of things. Um, and um, it's more the fact that, you know, particularly with weight training, the guys feel better. Um, exercise brings down blood pressure uh, as well. Um, so you obviously if you're on hypertensives and you're, you're also on, or antihypertensives, then you're also on ADT, you know, it's pretty tough um, in terms of getting good erection and uh, and, and also having that, you know, a, a positive uh, sexual health. Um, so the, the, the exercise, I think, is multifaceted in how it's working. It's doing some functional structural things uh, in terms of uh, perhaps being able to bring, uh, reduce their use of um, blood pressure medication, which will help, mm -hmm. um, bring their weight down, that helps, reducing inflammation and other things. Um, but I think probably the biggest thing that we've reported is that the men feel more masculine. They're getting in the gym with a whole bunch of other guys, they're lifting weights, uh, and that feeling of enhanced masculinity is actually having quite a positive effect on their sexual health. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's great. That makes a lot of sense. So is it too late? Like I remember reading a study about some rats that they had one group that never did exercise and was given cancer, one group that had no exercise prior to the cancer diagnosis and then one with um, exercise before and after the cancer diagnosis. And they, they and I, I hope I'm still right, but this was a study quite a long time ago and it showed some different outcomes for those groups. Is, that, is there a better time and a better outcome associated with when the exercise is initiated? Oh, Melissa, that's such a... Um... <laughs> 
a complex question. <laughs> um, look, I think probably most important we found is that uh, immediately a diagnosis. If the patient's not physically active, they need to get physically active real okay. quick. Wow. And the, the reason why is that, you know, the if they're going to be put on treatment, for example, testosterone suppression, ADT, mm. what we found was that if they start exercising immediately, then the side effects of the treatment will be reduced. Right. Um, and we, we looked at, we compared a group which started exercise immediately and then a group that started three months later. So we said, look, settle into the treatment, get used to it, and then we'll start the exercise. The outcomes were far better for the group that started immediately. Having said that, the groups that started at three months, after about you know six months of exercising, they were doing quite well. And so, you know, if they delayed, it, it still works and it still gives them it gives them benefit there uh, yeah. as well. But so in a probably nutshell, overall it is once you've got that diagnosis, is uh, you need to start addressing your health quickly. Yeah. So really, you know, if you start sooner the better, but if you haven't started and you're listening to this, it's never too late to start. You can still improve things. No, it's, ne it's never too late to start. We, we, we're running several studies in, in patients that are palliative, um, you know, they're stage four, um, ovarian cancer or uh, other cancers, prostate cancer. And, um, you know, we have men that come into our trials that have never exercised in their entire life. Um, they said, you know, I've sat at a desk my whole life. I've never, I just don't like sport um, and I've never done it. Um, that's a challenge. Uh, to get them uh, get them to exercise. They feel very uncomfortable. They've never sweated. They've never, you know, breathed heavy or been short of breath. They think it's, I must be dying. Um, <laughs> so it's, you know, it's, it's that support and education and, and helping them. One of the biggest things we see, particularly with um, men with prostate cancer, because they're generally, generally older, is that they have a, a real fear that something's going to go wrong, that they fear that they're going to hurt their knee or their back or they're yeah. going to have a heart attack and drop dead. In a supervised exercise program, even monitored at home, that's extremely unlikely. Extremely, a lot of people talk about, oh, I don't want to exercise because I'm going to have a heart attack. Um, and but the evidence doesn't bear that out. You're more likely to have a heart attack or a stroke on the toilet um, or in your local shopping centre than you are, um, you know, lifting weights or you know, pedalling on a stationary bike. And uh, so it's about coming overcoming that fear. But it is genuine, and what we find is that. Again, um, exercising in our clinics, of course, is very safe. Everyone's, everyone's trained in advanced resuscitation and first aid, et cetera. We've got emergency um, contacts to the, the ambulance. We can have an ambulance there in five minutes. Mm. Um, and we have, we have um, defibrillators and uh, oxygen, et cetera. Um, exercising, and, and, and most fitness centres will have that as well, and their staff have to be trained uh, in um, emergency procedures. Again, the risk of you... You know, having a heart attack in the gym is extremely low. You, you think of the billions of hours that people spend, you know, all ages exercising, and it's, it's, it's very, very unlikely, very unusual. Um, exercising at home is different, um, and it, it, they do feel that they want some monitoring, uh, and safety is important. And so that's why we're using things like the smart watches, uh, which are now hooked straight up to the cloud. Um, your Apple Watch, sorry, I don't mention any brand names, Fitbit, Garmin, <laughs> I'll mention a whole lot. Yeah. Um, but many of those now, they'll detect if you fall. They will detect if you if you hit the ground and you're not moving and they, they will immediately, or they'll buzz at you and say, are you all right? You need to press this button now to tell me you're all right. And if, if you don't, then it will call your, um, in case of emergency, your ICE contacts, ICE contacts. Yeah. 
Wow. Um, so that sort of technology um, is improving all the time. Uh, we, we can now monitor the person's heart rate, O2 saturation, blood pressure remotely uh, using these devices. Uh, it's all going up in the cloud and we can see it all. So at home-based exercises, it's coming a long way due almost entirely to COVID. Uh, I mean, COVID's been driving it. Yeah, I think COVID, as terrible as it's been, it has brought about some really amazing innovative changes that are going to long-term help health. Yes, they have. And, uh, you know, it, obviously all the biometrics now and the wearable techs really jumped ahead and the video conferencing has gone ahead in leaps and bounds. But uh, also, if you have a look at the number of offerings and high-quality offerings around um, home-based exercise, mm. uh, okay, I won't mention, won't mention any names, um, but you know you can you can sign up relatively inexpensive, get a, a you know a really professional exercise program delivered in your home. You can do yoga, meditation, mindfulness, um, yeah. high intensity interval training, um, weight training, and um, you know you can show it up on your on your television and you're good to go there in your lounge room. You're getting so much feedback from your from your devices as well, telling you how much you've done and. Um, you know what your heart rate is and all that tracking, which is which is great, and and that's all jumped ahead in the last two and a half years because people had to pivot to exercising at home. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's been mate, it's been an absolute game changer from my perspective. Just being able to send a script to someone's telephone instead of having to get a fax machine and send the prescription to the pharmacist, and you know, it's just made patient care from a distance so much easier. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I, I can't see it returning uh, to the way it was. We don't want people going to hospitals. Um, you know, they're, they're overrun. Um, their risk of infection is much, much higher. Um, you know, just pretty much all of the clinicians we work with, most of their uh, consultations and their multidisciplinary team meetings are done remotely now. Um, you know, as you, as you know, to, to go to the hospitals now, you have to be a close relative or something. You can't just rock up like the old days. Um, which is a good thing. Uh, you know, we, we need to keep people away from hospitals, you know, not, not exposing them to it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So anybody listening, apart from being able to go to find my find an AEP, what um would they be able to like get involved in any research projects now if they've got um, you know, prostate cancer that's quite far along, or or is then they're not recruiting anything at the moment? Oh, no, we're always, <laughs> Melissa, we're always recruiting. Okay. Um, so we've got a wide range of studies running at the moment. Uh, we have several in prostate cancer. We have one study uh, which is men on active surveillance. So no. they have localised, very low-grade disease, and their um, physician has said, look, let's just leave this alone. Um, you know, there's no need to do anything at the moment. And we're actually using exercise to see if we can slow the progression to stop it, stop them having to go on active therapy. Uh, there's been a couple of good studies, small studies, uh, which have shown that uh, if men adopt a certain um, exercise behaviour, some diet, a lot of dietary changes. Um, Kendall, in this one, a very famous study at the University of California, San Francisco, they actually went vegan um, wow. and also really adopted um, a lot of mindfulness meditation to manage anxiety. Uh, but the... Uh, the cancer itself was, was greatly reduced in, pro, in progression. And there was a, in, the, in the active, in the, in the intervention group, much, much uh, smaller percentage actually progressed to having to receive treatment like prostatectomy or ADT. 
um, which is reasonable. I mean, that's 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 fairly obvious that um, if, if you can change the systemic environment, uh, then it's much less likely that the disease is going to progress. So we have a study, a large study running in that at the moment. Uh, so any men which have low-grade disease. We also have at the other end of the spectrum, we have guys uh, that have stage four uh, incurable uh, cancer, prostate cancer. There was yep. a study running there. We call it our GAP4 um, study. It's funded by November. Oh, okay. And uh, so they're our two main, but we also have a very nice study uh, funded by Cancer Council WA um, and hats off to them because they've given us a lot of support, the Cancer Council. They're fantastic. And they funded a study where we're looking at men who are overweight or obese with prostate cancer. And it's a non-inferiority study. So what we're doing is comparing face-to-face -face in clinic exercise and dietary advice um, versus fully telehealth. Um, to try and show that um, uh, that uh, whether it's inferior to, for the um, for the telehealth option, um, so that, that's going quite well, and that's men with any um, any stage of, of prostate cancer as well. But you have to be overweight or obese uh, to be yeah, in that so one. So there are main prostate cancer studies, but we're also sorry. running studies in cancer of the pancreas, um, ovarian cancer, uh, lung cancer, a wide range of others. So to be determined as obese, does that mean you need a BMI of over 30? Is that right? Uh, no, I think I think our cutoff's 27. Okay. Oh, yeah. Excellent. So we can and so for anyone listening, BMI is body mass index. So and can people self-refer or do you need yep. your GP or your health professional to refer? Yeah, they can just contact us um, at the uh, Exercise Medicine Research Institute. If you go to our website, it's uh, exercisemedicine.org.au. Mm -hmm. uh, you'll see a place there to sign up for a trial and contact information. If you reach out to us by telephone or email, uh, then we'll come back to you. And uh, what we do is we try and recruit you into one of our trials because you get a whole lot of really cool assessments and uh, yeah. you get a really nice exercise program all yeah. for nothing. Yeah. Um, but if you don't fit in one of our trials, then uh, we try and offer you other services uh, as well. We'll offer you exercise or dietary advice or whatever um, through, through other mechanisms. That's really good. Mm. So I don't have any more questions for you, Rob. Kendall, do you have any more questions today? No, I wrote down heaps and he sort of was answering them as he was talking. Yeah, so, you were. Yeah. so is there anything that you'd like our listeners to know, Rob, that we haven't already brushed on today? Well, Melissa, Kendall, um, Geez, we've been over a lot of territory. We have. You've um, done really well. And I think we've made it in a way that, that our listeners can understand as well, which is great because yeah. it's always hard, you know. It's like to decipher what happens in research into layman's terms is difficult, I think. Yeah. Oh, great. Yeah, well, I hope, I hope it's helpful. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today. Great. Well, thank you very much for coming. Tell you about a boy who lives inside me. He's been there all of my life. Hi, I'm Melissa, and I hope you enjoyed the podcast this week. Just a reminder if you've been diagnosed with prostate cancer, I've built a penile rehabilitation program just for you. It's an online program packed with information, exercises and advice along with proven strategies that will get your penis back in working order as quickly as possible in about 15 minutes a day. If you like the sound of that, then please head over to penilerehabilitationprogram.com and you can start straight away or there's a link from the RS Health website.
We would also love you to review and subscribe and share this podcast so we can help more men. Links to Instagram and Facebook are in the show notes. We look forward to seeing you there. So spread the word that help is available. All the best for now. Bye. I've got a boy of my own now It fills me with pride To see him growing so fast into a man His victories become mine I cry his tears